Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Hey, thanks for joining us this weekend here at the Advertising Show. It's being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is powered by a killer vehicle. Well, actually, that's good. In, in saying that in a good way, it's a tendency, uh, the platform, and it's offered by the folks at shiffle.com. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. Ed and his crew here in Houston do a great job with uh, helping us market the Advertising Show and have been doing so for many years. Check it out. It's uh, Shipple.com. The Advertising Show, we have a guy who uh, who joined us uh, well, about a year ago, it was. Uh, why do we pay certain things for certain items? Why do we pay more for stuff? Why do we pay less for stuff? The price of everything is the book, and Eduardo Porter is also uh, work, works with the New York Times as well. But this book is fascinating, and so is today's interview. Enjoy this Encore show today. On the advertising show, Eduardo Porter, author of *The Price of Everything*, uh, also on the staff of the New York Times, where we're talking to him today. Eduardo, it, it is such a pleasure to catch up with you here at the advertising show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Eduardo, uh, you know it's too bad you haven't gotten around in your life as a journalist, <laughs> really? uh, yeah. as Ray read your bio. But before we uh, talk about what both Ray and I were discussing prior to today's interview, which is just an outstanding read, The Price of Everything, recommend to all of our listeners to go check that book out. It's a, it's a great book. And if you're in the marketing or advertising business or you just uh, have an interest in such, it's, uh, it's a great read and there's a lot of good information in there. But before we jump into that, Eduardo, what's your take on the economy, not globally, but just for the U.S. Uh, for the near term? That's a difficult question. I would, uh, it seems to be uh, improving. If you look at the data coming in, it looks like uh, economic growth is improving. Employment is gradually, slowly improving. So the arrows, I would say, are pointing in the right direction. But we are digging out from a very, very deep hole. And the improvement has been very, very gradual, in particular in employment, even though we had uh, the, uh, you know, uh, substantial job gains uh, last month. Uh, they were all, uh, it's not clear that this will become a sustained recovery in the labor market and in jobs. And right now, well, I think the most critical issue in the United States is jobs. Um, we have uh, uh, unemployment rate still near 9%, which is just unbelievably painful for many families. Really? Yeah, well, you know, as I see it, and I know you're not, you're not asking me, but I'll weigh in. Wall Street uh, is up, and that's encouraging for many. And then I heard recently, Eduardo, how a lot of uh, business uh, retail activity is shifting from traditional to online due to the increase in oil prices. And we all know what drives the U.S. economy, that being consumerism. So uh, the fact that consumers are still figuring out a way to spend money and with uh, – 
uh, stock uh, being still, uh, you know, coming back, I think is all favorable. Although everything you say, I can't disagree. Let's jump into the book. Uh, why the book, Eduardo? What was your motivation behind the price of everything? It was just this this realization that you know prices are embedded in every one of our choices. I mean, earlier you were speaking about you know choosing a beer. Well, you know, prices, as you can see, determine which beer to go to. You know, you might choose the one on sale over your favorite brand because it's cheaper. Um, but, but prices also affect all sorts of other decisions. You know, even the really deep-seated ones that we think are, are, are motivated by things like love or, you know, even religious faith. Well, even in those decisions, you know, there's costs and benefits which we assess. There's prices that lead us to take one road or take another. You know, think of it, think of this. I mean, about 10 years ago, I was having uh, uh, um, a conversation with an illegal immigrant farm worker in a, a patch of asparagus in uh, the San Joaquin Valley of California. I used to be, I used to write for the Wall Street Journal covering um, Hispanic, mm-hmm. uh, the Hispanic population, and that included immigration to some extent. And, and I was, I was doing a story there, and I was talking to this guy, and it stayed with me for a very long time because the conversation I was having was was pretty remarkable. This guy was trying to assess how to bring his kids into the United States illegally to live with him, and what he was what he was weighing was whether to bring them over what he called over the hill, which actually was like a three day grueling walk through the desert between Sonora and Arizona which was extremely risky for the kids and would have cost him about 1500 bucks per child paid to a smuggler. And the other option, which was much, much safer, to bring them across the border at a checkpoint using a fake you know, green card or other document. But that would have put him back about $5,000 per child paid to smugglers. So he was, you know, and he made $7 an hour, so these differences did, you know, were, were significant to him. But what stuck stuck with me, what struck me at the time was, wow, this guy is ultimately putting kind of a, a price on the odds of, of, of his children, you know, having a terrible accident or even dying, because, sure. you know, that's what could happen on, on in this. And I, the first, my first reaction was, wow, this is amazing. But then, as I thought of it a bit more, I felt, well, in fact, we all make similar sorts of decisions. You know, we all price options. In, in, in even in the mo- this most important domain, such as the value of life or, or the value of love, do we get married or do we not get married? Well, we're kind of assessing the expected benefits of marriage, which presumably are enduring love and children and so forth, versus, you know, the, the pleasures of the single life, which, you know, are also worth something to us. And we are trading these things against each other. Um, so we're there... We are pricing our options there, too. Well, I can't tell you how disappointed Ray and I were when we went directly to Chapter 4, The Price of Women, and found out it wasn't what we thought it was going to be about. <laughs> but, okay. uh, you know, you, you have some wonderful titles for each chapter, The Price of Things, The Price of Life. You touched a little bit on that. The Price of Happiness, which I want to drill down on, The Price of Work, Price of Culture, The Price uh, of the Future, etc., in researching your book, Eduardo, did you find any one particular fact that just totally blew you away as you were discovering about consumers, what motivated them with regard to price? Well, there's actually many little facts 
and dynamics, it blew me away when I was researching. And if we're talking about, you know, the consumer experience, I mean, there's some great research out there about how we behave that kind of like trumps our conventional wisdom. You know, it, uh, one particular instance was this fantastic experiment that, that the psychologist in New Mexico did with lap dancers. I don't know if you, <laughs> if you, if you saw that bit, but, you know, part of this was the, the guys are researching, well, what make people uh, 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 um, uh, pay uh, a given thing for for a, for you know uh, a session with a lap dancer and and yeah. you know lap dancers are paid with tips. There's not like a set fee, and they found they they went and they 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 canvassed uh, patrons and dancers in some uh, some clubs in, in in New Mexico, and they found that lap dancers who were near the peak of their fertility. Um, um, received much, much higher tips for dancing than dancers that were at any other point in the cycle or the dancers that were on the pill. So this was, and, and what was most fascinating about this was that neither the dancers nor the patrons actually knew this was going on. So something was going on under the radar screen of rationality. You know, something that was happening at gut level that had maybe to do with the, the smell of the dancer or the way she danced that meant that when they were at their most fertile, they were, the experience of them dancing was worth more to, to patrons. And, and what I found wonderful about this was we tend to understand prices as, as, as part of a very rational decision. You know, you go into the supermarket, you look at, you know, that toothpaste one and toothpaste two, and you think which one you like more, and you look at the prices, see which one is more expensive and cheaper. In any event, you rationally decide which one is better. But this, this was happening, you know, kind of like outside the brain, right? This was happening at gut level, as it were, because people didn't really know this was going on. And I find that, you know, that all these, like, non-rational motivators of our behavior that will lead us to, you know, perhaps pay more than we would if it was just a rational process um, are, are pretty fascinating. I think it's interesting, too, that you mentioned the, the lap dance thing, because Brad is actually doing the same survey and has hit, uh, oh, I don't know how many clubs... Uh, around the country thus far has not uh, revealed the results. I think he's got well, a Well, actually, I, I have a result in right now, Ray. There's yeah. a direct relationship to the level of intoxication and the willingness to purchase a lap dance. This relates to me and you, at least. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right, yes. I'll have another beer. On the advertising show, Eduardo Porter is our special guest. On that uh, weird note, uh, Eduardo is uh, the author of a brand-new book called uh, The Price of Everything. And uh, we'll uh, come back and talk more with Eduardo and Ryan Brad here at the Advertising Show. Stay right here. You're listening to the Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. No, nothing takes it off like Noxima medicated cheese. Welcome back with the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. So happy to be talking this weekend with Eduardo Porter. He's uh, on the staff of the New York Times since January of 2004. Uh, he's also the author of a brand new book called The Price of Everything. Eduardo, your book is fascinating. The information is uh, really eye-opening. Uh, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, wonderful read, Eduardo. Uh, in your book, you note economists will tell you that people will always prefer the cheaper option, yet you say many consumers will make purchases just to show off to others. I think we all know one or two of these types of people. Uh, yet you, you give a great example of how price can influence perception of quality. And some of those examples, one was around wine. I'd like to uh, have you touch on that. And I want to follow up and talk to you about art, because wine and art seems to go together. They do, indeed. Um, well, wine is a, is, a, is a perfect example of how prices can be used as markers of quality. Um, we tend to, to, to understand our purchasing decision as we go into a store, we decide whether we like something, and then we look at the price to see whether it will fit within our budget and how it makes sense within all the other stuff that we want to buy. But sometimes, and it, sometimes the price itself signals the desirability of the of the uh, of the commodity. And wine is is such a case. When you look at a ten dollar bottle of wine, you're going to think it's not as good as a hundred dollar bottle of wine. And in tests, uh, in taste tests, people will actually report that the more expensive wine tastes better when they know the price. Then, of course, if you do these tests blindfolded, you know, that they don't know what wine they're having and which one is more expensive than the other, then it turns out that uh, sometimes they even like the cheaper wines better. Hmm. So, but pr- so price is, is um, um, serving a function of telling the consumer how good something is. And this can actually uh, also operate at a very profound level. There is a wonderful experiment, this time done by psychologists, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which um, gave a bunch of, of people placebo pills. You know, p- placebo pills are sugar pills that have no therapeutic value, but, you know, they gave these pills to a group of students, and they told them that they were painkillers. The twist here was they, to- they told half the students that these painkillers cost uh, $2.50 a pop, and the other half uh, were told that the painkillers cost $0.10 cents each. Well, the group that got the $2.50 placebo, or that thought they were getting a $2.50 painkiller, reported much, much more uh, um, uh, effective pain relief than the group that got the cheaper ones. So here, you know, clearly, and they were both the same thing. They were sugar pills. They were not painkillers. But but price was affecting, you know, the the biology of the people that got these these, uh, pills. And that they were convincing themselves that they were their pain was getting cured. Sure, it seems like, and what you're saying, and I think we can all relate to this. You go to a nice restaurant, and you're uh, you have the ambiance and the you know well dressed uh, waiter, presenter, nice china, tablecloth, etc. Yeah. That all influences the experience, and I think it's almost as if the mind is playing a trick on what you're actually experiencing. But when when we talk about art. Uh, you know, that's a visual thing. You're looking at something. And I think we've all seen, and we all know art is in the eye of the beholder, right? So we've all seen art that we look at and we say, hmm, well, maybe that's not for me. And then you look at the price and you go, well, wait a minute. And and it kind of makes you think, would that be a great way for an, a new artist to get out there and make an ac- astronomical price for his art that makes people say, well, gosh, it must be good. Look how, how expensive it is. Yeah. Well, thing is that art is an industry that has an enormous amount of, 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 of um, accoutrements. I mean, there's all these people that are telling you what is significant and what is not significant. So there's lots of signals 
hitting the art market. Price is one of them, and perhaps you know, putting an exorbitant price on something would draw attention to the piece. But there are these other you know, messages that are happening at the same time in magazines, from art critics, from other buyers, that are also building up a sense of whether this piece of art is worth it or not. And so I'm not sure that that alone would do the trick, you know, just putting a high price tag on it. But I'd like to, but I'd like to make another point about, about, about art. I think art is a great example of prices functioning in, in yet another way from, from the ones that we've just discussed. Um, in the case of art, I think that the price of the piece of art doesn't actually tell you anything about the quality about, of the artwork or doesn't principally tell you something about the quality of the artwork. I think the price of art is meant to tell you something about the quality of the person who buys that piece of art. Hmm. Yeah. So, what ha- so if you have a, you know, a $25 million Picasso hanging from your wall, well, that is meant to signal uh, your quality to, your pe- to the people around you. You are the person who can buy a $25 million Picasso. And I believe that's a, a, co- a core motivator of people to buy these things. And there's, you know, in, in 2008, uh, there was this auction of license plates in Abu Dhabi, you know, they, and they auctioned the number one license plate. And there's this guy who bought the number one Abu Dhabi license plate. I remember that, yeah. $14 million, I think it was. Now, this was the most expensive license plate ever, right? And it was still just a piece of plastic with a number one on it that you'd attach to a car. But so what was, why was this guy paying? What was he getting for $14 million? Well, he was sending a signal that he was worth, that he could spend $14 million on a trifle, on something trivial. And um, I would argue that this isn't this isn't just you know some some trivial example of, of ostentation. I think that it comes from a very deep place in our evolution. And and the the, the reason I think of this is 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 because it, it, it you see this same kind of things in the animal kingdom. And and just think of it. Think of peacock tails. Think of peacocks. You know they have these huge enormous tails that are very very beautiful. But these tails are very costly for peacocks. They have to spend tons of energy in developing them that they could develop using, you know, building bigger muscles or a bigger brain. They use them on these enormous tails. The tails make it more difficult for them to run from whatever eats peacocks. Um, So for, for their personal survivability, these things are costly. So why do they have them? Why do they spend so much energy on them? Well, because these peacocks tell all the peahens in the mating market that these guys are so fit that they can spend all this energy on some pointless tail. And if they can spend so much energy on this pointless tail, they must be genetically really very fit. So they must be great mates. And so they, they'll have a higher chance of having lots of little pea chicks. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's almost like the difference between a, a, a Bell and Ross or a citizen or something like that. You're going to mention uh, something about yourself just by exposing uh, others to your choices and such. Uh, as well. Uh, We've got uh, Eduardo Porter on the show, author of The Price of Everything here with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Take a break and come back in just a minute with more. Eduardo Porter, our special guest here at the advertising show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth, and uh, the book is called The Price of Everything. you got to read this book. It's good. Eduardo, welcome back. Nice to have you here. Hey, how are you doing? 
Yeah, it's always easy uh, interviewing a, a great uh, guest, an author that can put more than uh, four or five words together, right, Ray? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Eduardo, uh, before we talk about happiness, uh, you say in your book that the most important currency is opportunity, and the cost of taking any action consists of the alternatives that were available at the time. I'm curious, when I read this, I asked myself, is this a conscious consideration that consumers weigh, or is this something they're totally aware that they're doing? Uh, well, both, actually. I mean, in some cases, it is. It's, it's a very basic proposition. Think of the $5 buck of pizza that, that you bought. Well, in New York, that's what pizza costs. Um, mm-hmm. the, the price of that 5 bucks slice of pizza is all the other things that you could have done with $5, but that you can't do because you spent them on the pizza. So that's the opportunities that you didn't take, and that's the opportunity cost. But you can also see this again as, you know, the opportunity cost of, uh, of quitting your job to go to college. Well, there you'll get some, there's going to be some benefits in the college package, and but there's some cost in losing your present wage and so on, and whatever training you could have gotten from your job. I mean, I, a lot of these decisions are quite rational. But as I was, um, but I think in some cases we make these decisions without really carefully analyzing these things because they become either part of social norms that we accept. So, for instance, the marriage institution. I maybe, I maybe. Um, there is there is clearly this analysis to be done. Well, what am I getting from marriage, and what am I abandoning when I'm leaving the the, the life of, of a single person? And I'm sure this is kind of like moving around in the gut of somebody that's considering this change. But but some but I doubt that they, that people really act on a on, on on you know put put the costs and benefits on two sides of a of a spreadsheet and and, and measure them off because. It, marriage has become a social institution that one just does, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of like the, the norm um, moves us to take these decisions, and, and, and we don't necessarily do all the individual analysis of the cost and benefits of them. You know, uh, we've all had someone at one time or another tell us we can't put a price on happiness, yet in your book you say a price does exist. It relates directly to the objective measures of people's quality of life. So am I oversimplifying that concept by saying that if I perceive that something will make my life better and I can afford it, I'll buy it? Well, the, the point here is that people who have more money do tend to report being happier, period. I mean, that's it's, it's kind of like a, it's not a theoretical proposition, it's just a fact of life. If you survey folks in, in one country or, you, or folks in different countries and you look at, you know, how satisfied they are with their lives, the richer folks tend to be more satisfied than the poorer folks. Now, the reason for that it seems to make sense to say, is that because all this money affords you a lot of new opportunities of interesting things that you can do with your life and gets rid, takes care of a bunch of bad things that you, that, 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 that you know, folks with less money can't, can't get rid of, sort of like poor health and stuff like that. So um, that's, the essential, that's the essential proposition, that a higher income does lead to higher satisfaction. Now, I'm not saying that money is the only thing that provides more satisfaction or more happiness. I mean, there are other things like, you know, getting married or, uh, 
you know, or, or, or uh, other sorts of experiences might, may increase your level of happiness. Religious folks tend to report being happier than folks that are not religious, for instance. Um, but, but the clear fact is that, you know, more money is associated with higher happiness and higher satisfaction. So you'd say that Bernie Madoff would be uh, have used up all of his happiness quotient for an entire lifetime? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, he seems to have used the happiness quotient of him and lots of other people. Yeah, now he's yeah. not so happy. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, Brad. Go ahead. You know, in your book, you uh, mentioned something that I recall hearing, and I assume it's the same uh, data point uh, a few years ago, which was there a study had been done that uh after a certain level of income i think the figure was around $75,000 that your happiness does increase incrementally along the way say you began at 20,000 and and you go up to 75,000 but north of 75,000 per year in income that the actual happiness quotient so uh, quotient so to speak uh, is negligible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a, let's try to understand what happiness is. It's kind of a squishy concept to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, scientists tend to understand it as made up of two different things. There's one kind of like more irrational, immediate gut-level emotion that we understand as happiness, kind of like the thing that makes you laugh out loud, that makes you feel ecstatic or, you know, or filled with joy, and you don't really know why, you know, the the stuff that bursts out, let's call that happiness. And then there's another kind of like more reasoned part, you know, that, that has to do with how you evaluate where you are in life and whether you like where you are or you don't like where you are. Let's call that satisfaction. And I would say those are those two things are what make our sense of, of happiness uh, kind of like m- completely understood. Now, the, the, the study that you refer to actually looked at both sides of this, at, at happiness and what I call happiness and what I call satisfaction. And the first part, the, the, the kind of like the gut level happiness, did tend to stop rising after you hit about $75,000. So you do, you, people did become happier as, as income rose, but then it sort of leveled off. It didn't, you know, more money didn't produce more happiness in that measured in that sort of way. But this other more evaluative part of happiness did continue going up. All the way up, it kept going up and up. As, as, I, mean, I think that the, the study ended at about $180,000 a year. So, but all the way to the end of the study, the level of, of reported satisfaction kept increasing as, as income increased. And this sort of makes sense, I mean, because I think that the way that income tends to improve happiness kind of like works through our more rational processes. Well, you know, I can do these, these things, I have better health care, I have more opportunities to travel, you know, my life is less constrained by money limits. And so this is kind of like the rational satisfaction is the one that it makes sense that this is the one that keeps responding to money. Whereas the other thing like the yippee, I won the lottery kind of thing, mm-hmm. I feel that one is probably more short-lived because once you get rid of that immediate yippee, you know, I can get the things that I used to want and that I couldn't, well, you know, maybe in a little while you're going to want more expensive things that you can't even at your new level of income. So I... 
it's sort of like two different parts of the emotion that react differently to money. So I'm thinking that uh, when things get down there at the times, you're the guy they call to come in for uh, a pep talk. Is that uh, correct as well? <laughs> no, I think I'm the one for the reverse pep talk. You know, it's all about evaluating your choices. You know, just think of it in hard-headed terms. You know. I see. Okay, so you're realist too. I, I like that. Well, I'm the realist. There you go. You, you've got a great book and a fascinating uh, career as, as well. Continued success there at the New York Times. And I hope you sell a whole bunch of these books because it is great. The Price of Everything. Now, uh, you can go to eduardoporter.com uh, to find out more about the book. And, of course, you find it uh, elsewhere. But it has been a sincere pleasure having you here on the Advertising Show today. Thanks so much. I had a lot of fun. Never a dull moment on the Advertising Show and always a great interview for you. Thank you so much for listening. Rachel and Fred, of course, I tell a friend, too, about the Advertising Show right here at theadvertisingshow.com. Being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. Talk to you next week, okay? The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications. And it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.